This is Raven Debriefs. We sat down with Doreen Manuel, a filmmaker and one of the organizers of the historic Constitution Express. In her office at Capilano University, where she mentors a new generation of Indigenous media producers, Manuel showed us photos from her extensive archives from what was one of the most important Indigenous-led movements ever. Hi, I'm Doreen Manuel. My traditional name is Kashlupakakin, and I am from the Sokotmik Etznaha tribes. The resistance movement started before I was even born. My father, uh, before I was even born uh, in the 50s, he was already going into courts and representing people when it was still illegal for our people to have a lawyer. He was posing as an interpreter, but he was already trained in law. He had been mentored and trained by a, a white lawyer who uh, wanted to help our people. So he trained my father in law and my father, he would help my father prepare the cases. And so he would go to court and be the lawyer for our people. You've probably heard of the Indian Act, the piece of legislation that was responsible for creating the residential school systemic genocide of indigenous peoples. Within the Indian Act was a proviso that made it illegal for indigenous peoples to hire lawyers or practice law on pain of fines or loss of status. So Doreen's father was a trailblazer and a bit of a trickster. There were just more and more issues people were coming to him about, and the issues were bigger than just a court case. And he was being mentored in by a really great leader by the name of Andy Paul. And so he, when Andy Paul passed away, he took over Andy's work, which was the work of uniting all of our people of building a lobbying mechanism for Indigenous people. The National Indian Brotherhood at the time, it had already been founded, but he, he built it up and grew it into a very large organization, and now that organization is the Assembly of First Nations. When my father retired from that organization, he became the leader of the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, and it was during that leadership that he formed the Constitution Express. The civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s had awakened the general public's awareness of the social injustices experienced by Black and Indigenous peoples throughout Turtle Island. Indigenous peoples had never stopped organizing, campaigning, and agitating for change. But when an Indian Act amendment lifted the ban on legal action, Indigenous political organizing swept onto center stage. The Canadian government was um, introduced a constitution they wanted to separate from England. And so they introduced this constitution that made no mention of Indigenous people at all. The British Crown had an obligation to us as Indigenous people that they would never take anything away from us, meaning our lands that had been supposedly given to us. I have difficulty with this English because you can't give something to us that we already own. But they had, say, they had set aside reservations that were our territories, our lands that were within our territories but that they said we owned. And if the government of Canada formed its own government, because they weren't their own government at the time, they were a, um, a group underneath the British government. 
if they formed their own government and separated from Britain, then they could do what, whatever they wanted to the indigenous people and the lands. So they could have taken away our reservations overnight, taken away all of our rights and Aboriginal title away overnight, if we were not included in that constitution. Indigenous peoples had already had a taste of what the intentions of the Canadian government were with regard to modernization of their policies towards First Nations. The 1969 White Paper had proposed to convert reserve lands to fee-simple private land that could be bought and sold, while eliminating Indian status for everyone, everywhere. Assimilation was the name of the game. The White Paper had five or six points in it. And when you read it, it sounded like good things, like they were going to honor our culture. Um, they were going to take away the, any distinction so that we would be equal to everybody else. So those sound like good things. But when you read it from their perspective, they're not good things. What it meant was uh, they were going to take anything away that could differentiate us from other people sounded like maybe they were going to put in place things, uh, rights for us that where we would get equal rights to white people. No, that's not what it meant. It meant they were going to take away our reservations. Anything that made us special. They called it special status. So basically, if we had allowed that to be enacted, then they would have removed all of our Aboriginal title and rights pretty much overnight. They were going to offer some economic support to help grow businesses. It was only going to be available for a short amount of time and then nothing. We had to fight the white paper so that we would maintain our Aboriginal title and rights. Every one of these actions through history has been us fighting to retain our Aboriginal title and rights. Fast forward to 1980 and the Constitution Express. My father, George Manuel, who was a full-blood Chihuahuamic, started the idea of the Constitution Express. And so he reached out to the people to say, you know, to try to get people incited. Well, us women had already had um, several movements that we were developing. Well, first came the Indian Child Caravan, and then we morphed into the Concerned Aboriginal Women's Movement. And that's what we were running at the time when he was looking for people to organize the Constitution Express. So we stepped up and turned into the Constitution Express and organized, because we were already fundraising. We already had a whole mechanism for organizing around activism. That's why it was so important, is we needed to fight for the children's rights. And that was part of it, the Constitution Express. This is the voice of Cuckby Wayne Christian from 1978. Every child has a right to be protected and kept safe, to be given food, shelter, the teachings and gifts of their natural heritage. I am an Indian chief. I am an Indian father. I am an Indian man who hurts when I see our Indian children taken away from their families, their land, their traditions. Stolen and removed from the security of Indian surroundings and the Indian spirit 
that has been their home for countless winters and springs. In the old days, there was no need for foster homes. It is our custom to share the responsibility of raising our children. This unique extended family has maintained the Indian community for centuries. Our grandmothers and grandfathers have given us many gifts. Now our gift to them is the assurance their grandchildren will know the Indian way of life. Led by chiefs from across the country, two trains were booked to carry people in a caravan to Ottawa, then a delegation to Europe. So there were two trips. There was the trip to Ottawa that was two trains, and the delegation was thousands of people on those trains, and there was all the elders flew because they wouldn't have been able to endure that long train ride. Then there was hundreds on the planes coming across. And because my father wound up with a heart attack and wound up in the hospital on their way to Ottawa, uh, my brother Bob took over as a spokesperson. So it was my brother Bob and Wayne Christian, who's also Squamish. Um, I think they were the main spokespeople. And Trudeau's government wouldn't meet with them. They said that as soon as they arrived, they weren't going to meet with them. My brother didn't know what to do. He turned to my dad and asked him, what do we do? And my father said, piss on him, he's not the one with the power anyways. Meet with the British. This was all taking place during a renaissance of Indigenous organizing. Nations were also flexing their legal muscles, bringing groundbreaking legal challenges to the courts and winning many of them. Cases like the Calder case paved the way for federal government's recognition of Indigenous title and worked in tandem with political organizing to move the needle on Indigenous rights. That's when they decided they were going to go to uh, first to New York because there was a UN meeting going on at that time. A small delegation went down to New York and then they uh, planned the European trip. So everybody went home and started fundraising. You know, these are bake sales. That's the kind of fundraising they were doing. Uh, selling cows, just doing whatever they could to raise the money for the plane tickets for everybody to go to Europe. My sister and I started a clothing factory in a little, in her apartment. Everybody wanted Indian government shirts and my brother had invented the Indian government flag and everybody was using it, everybody wanted to wear it and I had studied fashion design so I was sewing it onto shirts. I was sewing shirts and putting Indian government flag on the back. Developed patches, people were wearing it on their hats, everywhere. And so her and I were sewing hundreds and hundreds of shirts and selling them. And that's how we raised the money for her and my son's plane tickets to go to Europe. And my brother-in-law, who my sister was with at the time, he was a carver, really well-known West Coast carver. He was carving and carving and selling. And then uh, everybody was doing that kind of work to raise the money. Sometimes it's hard to see what ground has been fought and won from where we're standing. But if Doreen hadn't uprooted her entire family and joined forces with thousands of others from the Arctic to the Maritimes and all points in between, we could be living in a very different country today. There was a whole children's delegation. And in fact, 
At one point, Ron George stood up and he said, we shouldn't bring children, it's gonna be a hard trip. And the women got so mad at him. They just stood up and they said, who do you think we're fighting for? When, it, when we're weak and when we're beaten down and when it's hardest for us, we're gonna look into our children's eyes and we're gonna rise up again like warriors and we're gonna fight on. If we don't have our children with us, who's gonna lift our spirits when it's the hardest? And they said, our children are coming. There's gonna be a children's delegation. And my son at the time, he was already a drummer. And he, they, they had their little drums, but they also had a big drum. The men had a big drum that they brought, like Derek Wilson was one of the main singers, a really powerful voice. And his brother Barry Wilson, but together, and Arnold Ritchie, they had just incredibly powerful voices, and they taught all these children to sing with powerful voices, and my son could drum at the big drum. So it was very, a very cultural group that went over there and they traveled all through um, uh, all the surrounding countries lobbying because well, the surrounding countries have an influence on what Britain decides because like any country, they want to be seen as being good people. So it was through this really sophisticated, elaborate lobby. And then they had these huge rallies in England and then they made their presentation, and um, and they won. They won the inclusion of Section 35. Section 35, which recognizes and affirms the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples in Canada, was a game changer. Following consultations with Aboriginal representatives during the First Minister's Conference, in 1983, additional clauses were added after lengthy campaigns by women's groups who sought and won assurance that they would not lose their Indian status if they married non-Indigenous partners. You could say Section 35 recognizes our Aboriginal title and rights. But what does it recognize? Because it doesn't define it. And that's the thing. The government wants to only recognize Aboriginal title and rights if they define what it is. But what they define it is is far too narrow. We want to define our Aboriginal title rights as back looking at our government as a sovereign government, looking at what our government did have authority over in, you know, pre-contact. Figuring out how to apply Section 35 has been the meat of many a court case ever since. From the Delgamook case, which recognized title to unceded territories as an existing Aboriginal right, to the Gikatla challenge that clarified the government's duty to consult and stop the Northern Gateway Pipeline project, nations have used Section 35 as a foundation to build power. The next stage for Doreen is about expanding jurisdiction to cover the traditional territories that have been stewarded by her peoples since time immemorial. This is all work that is being done as part of the title case being brought by Stukumloops Tesequep Nation 
whose legal challenge is being supported by Raven. It was the church in my territory that pulled us all in off the land and put us in subdivisions. Before that, we were living all out onto the land on the Squatman territories in my community. And the priest didn't like having to go out and serve everybody and try to pull them all in together to have church. So he forced them to come in off the land and build homes in subdivisions. Now you see on one side of the river, there's a little row of houses. On the other side of the river, there's some houses and a subdivision. We're all pulled in off of the lands. And they're saying we're not using the land. Well, that's because they pulled us off the land. So it's like they forced us off of the land. And now they're saying, well, you know, you're not even on the land, so why can't we just take it on you? Why, you know, we should be getting our territories back. You know, those huge, massive pieces of crown land that they took from us, we should be getting that back. Why is it that the British Columbia government is ruling over our territories, our resources? Ten, this is an old figure, but $10 billion a year leaves British Columbia in forest products. What about mining? What about all the other products that leave British Columbia? Those are our monies that they're using to build infrastructure for their citizens while we live in poverty. That's unacceptable. And a title case, you know, if it's going to be something like the Chilcotin title case, um, it's important. It's important work to have a title case because it just um, defines more about what our Aboriginal title and rights are and gives us the opportunity to define it ourselves. hear from Doreen's stories that the struggle is intergenerational. She's part of a long, strong line of leaders that includes her sister, her father, George Manuel, her brothers Bob and Arthur Manuel, and her children. Inspired by the power of family and the struggle for rights, we asked Doreen what this Aquatmic word, Kwaselkin, which literally translates to all my relations, means to her. Well, if I'm going to look at that word from a very holistic point of view, it means everything that I've been fighting for my whole life. And that is, you know, this earth and everything on it that feeds and nourishes us, the air and keeping it clean, all of the children who are yet unborn, because that's who we really owe everything to because they're the ones who are going to carry us, our people, us, as I won't be around as a human being anymore by then in seven generations, but it will carry our nation and the breath of our nation into the future. Thanks so much to Doreen Manuel for sharing stories of the past and inspiration for the future. You're listening to Raven Debriefs. Subscribe and share from wherever you get your podcasts.